Good morning. Welcome to our weekly Bible talk. We've come today to one of the events in the Bible, and it's probably one that you're familiar with, even if, even if you don't say attend church regularly. Um, the crossing of the Red Sea is a big deal in the Bible for a variety of reasons. We're going to talk about what it means in the Book of Exodus. We're all going to talk about, also going to talk about what it means in sort of the overarching. Uh, theology of the Bible, uh, especially because later on Peter makes some very interesting connections between the crossing of the, the, of the Red Sea and baptism, which Lord willing will talk. We probably won't talk about that this morning. We'll talk about that maybe next week. Um, but this is a big deal. It's certainly a miracle of God. Uh, sometimes people try to interpret this as you know the tide going out or some such nonsense. Uh, this is absolutely a miracle of God, and it's designed in a way to illustrate the way in which salvation is of the Lord. God uh, is, the, is the Savior. We are those who are saved, and all we need to do is sit back and watch God work his salvation. Uh, I'm sort of getting ahead of myself, so let me pray and then we'll dive into the crossing of the Red Sea. Let's pray together. God in heaven, you are a great and awesome God, a mighty king. You are a holy God, Lord. No one is perfect and pure like you are. You are the definition of what is right and good. Thank you so much for your son Jesus and for the way that he saves completely those who trust in him. We are sinners, we need a savior, and you and your mercy have provided our need with giving, by, by giving us Jesus. And we thank you so much for him. Open our eyes now by your spirit. We do pray that your spirit would have his work of illumination uh, in our hearts right now. Uh, help us to pay attention, to engage, to uh, be following along carefully, and use this time to renew our minds and to make us like your son. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Now hopefully you know kind of where we are in the context of the book of Exodus. Uh, all the plagues have taken place. Pharaoh, he, he said, okay, well, I'm going to let you guys go. You, you've been a, just a plague on me for the last couple of years. So Moses, take the two million children of Israel and get out of here. And as they're journeying out, you'll remember that the people of Israel ask for gold and silver uh, articles from the, children of, uh, from the people of Egypt and they give them to them freely. Then we had about a chapter and a half where they talked, where Moses talked about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is an interesting sort of insertion here. It sort of tells you how important that event is in the life of the people of Israel. It's comparable to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper ought to be a very significant event in the life of the of the church. So also in the Old Testament Hebrews, uh, the Passover was this very significant event that was supposed to be a yearly reminder of what God did for them in redeeming them out of the land of Egypt. Well, now we finally come to the crossing of the Red Sea. And the, the passage is long. If you look at chapter 14, it's uh, 31 verses, and, and there's a lot of description. Like I've been doing, I'll read a few verses, make some comments. We'll probably spend at least two weeks on this, um, but it is a major event, and it's one that's got a lot of good lessons to teach us. Let's begin chapter 14, Exodus 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pitharoth between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Now here's the reason, verse 3. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, Several things to notice here. First, a lot of these locations, we don't exactly know where they are. Uh, Migdal, Baal Zephon. You know, we're talking about events that took place nearly 3,500 years ago. So a lot of these, you know, villages or little towns have long since disappeared. Uh, the idea, though, is clear what's going on. Uh, God intentionally wants them to sort of pretend as if they're uh, lost in the wilderness. If you remember Egypt, there, there's the Sinai Peninsula right there. 
They head out of Goshen and they start kind of wandering around, uh, giving Mo or not Moses, giving Pharaoh the impression that they're sort of lost and not entirely uh, sh- sure where they're going. You'll remember a couple of Bible studies ago, uh, they didn't go by the way of the sea th- uh, toward the land of the Philistines. And remember, God said, you know, had they gone that way, they would have uh, feared the Philistines and possibly even turned back. But here's a secondary reason for why God took them the way that He did. He actually wants uh, to get even further glory over Pharaoh. And that's a little bit shocking, but again, let the Bible tell us what God is like. Don't let sort of intuition and your feelings tell us what God is like. But anyway, they encamp here, uh, verse 3, Pharaoh will say they are wandering in the land and the wilderness has shut them in. So God wants him to draw this wrong conclusion. Now, this raises the whole question of, uh, does God sometimes deceive people? Uh, Perhaps for the sake of time, I won't go too far along those lines, but there are occasions where it certainly looks as if God does uh, deceive people. Um, I I realize that challenges our whole, like, you know, understanding of integrity and whatnot, uh, but there are so many instances of this in Scripture that it's hard to get around them. Uh, You know, you've got this instance here. God wants wants them to kind of pretend they're lost to draw out Pharaoh. You've got several instances where Joshua, when he's fighting the Canaanites, that they pull this sort of bait-and-switch type attack, and they're doing that on the instruction of the Lord. You've got that time when uh, Samuel is anointing David, and he does it all in secret, and even the Lord gives Samuel the instructions how to do it in secret so that uh, Saul doesn't know about it. Um, so there are occasions like this. I'd encourage you to look into these and explore this more. Does God, on occasion use deception? That's not even the right word, because God is holy. Like I said in my prayer, God is pure. He defines what is right and wrong. But there are these instances where it does appear as if God, especially, they seem to be limited to warfare, by the way. And that might be the difference. You know, if you know anything about World War II, uh, they did on D-Day use a lot of deception. Uh, They actually had, you, you know, I'm sort of assuming you know a little bit about the D-Day invasion, but they're crossing the English Channel, they come in uh, on Normandy, but they had this gigantic diversion up in the north. They even had these like inflatable tanks that were, um, you know, some of you see these inflatable things in people's yards for Halloween, they got an inflatable dragon or something like that. They had inflatable tanks like that so that the uh, Germans would see those and think, oh, I guess they're crossing way up north here and not down near Normandy. most Christians think that's acceptable. That in a time of warfare, it's okay to use deception to, uh, as part of attacking your enemy. And there does seem to be something to that in Scripture, that when there's an actual war going on, uh, when massive numbers of lives are at stake, uh, deception is permissible. I realize this is a very uncomfortable conversation because it, it can, if handled incorrectly, impinge the righteousness and holiness of God, which we don't want to do. But again, I mean, deal with what the passage is clearly saying here. He wants... Pharaoh to draw the wrong conclusion that they're lost so as to draw him out so that God gets even greater glory over him. Verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. We've talked a good bit about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart before. Like I've mentioned, I preached an entire sermon on this concept. It is a difficult one for us to get, but I do think with all of this, we've got to let the Bible tell us what God is like as opposed to our intuition and, and our sense of what God should be like. That's one of the great temptations in reading the Bible, uh, to come with your kind of mind already made up. God is like this. God does this. God doesn't do that, as opposed to letting the Bible inform you what God is like. Uh, If you come sort of with a more open mind, 
Bible, tell me what God is like, uh, you, you won't run into all these problems. But if you come with this preconception, God, uh, this is how I imagine God, you'll run into a lot of problems with Scripture because God is often not how we imagine Him. Uh, actually, in the Psalms, we're criticized. Humans are criticized because we thought God was like us. We thought He was weak and small and, and fickle like we are, when, then, when in reality God is nothing like that. So when you approach the Bible, approach it with an attitude of humility. Uh, God, you tell me what what you're like. You tell me your definition of holiness, of love, of righteousness, uh, as opposed to me sort of imposing these on Scripture, because you'll always go wrong. Part of what the fall has done to us is has led us to wrong conclusions even about the character of God. Uh, you know, again, we, we tend to be gravi- we, we tend to gravitate basically toward a God that's like Santa Claus. I know I've talked about this many times before. I actually wonder if Santa Claus is sort of like natural human religion. We like the idea of a God, but we want this God to be kind of weak and you know he winks at sin, but he gives us good things when we're good boys and girls. That, that's kind of the God that we want. And I think again that I wonder if the whole Santa Claus myth is kind of like natural religion just uh, dressed up with some you know tinsel and whatnot uh, so again realize that by nature we're going to draw a lot of wrong conclusions about God beware of like intuition and natural reasoning as far as trying to figure out what God is like as instead let scripture teach us what God is like and you might be surprised to discover he's a little bit uh, not, not a little bit he's considerably different than what you imagine but anyway he hardens Pharaoh's heart intentionally to draw him out uh, he's trying to get just utter, uh, utter glory over Pharaoh. It's as if, you know, he's already knocked him down ten times in these previous plagues. And again, I mentioned that the plagues probably took up to two years. You know, they didn't all happen in one weekend, but there was probably this two-year span of time where he's humbling Pharaoh, humbling Pharaoh, humbling Pharaoh, and here he's going to act just absolutely decimate him. And this is one area where I think that the Charlton Heston movie gets it wrong. You know, I grew up watching the Charlton Heston movie, and it was a lot of fun. It was, you know, kind of a melodramatic movie from kind of the, the great age of Hollywood. But one of the things that I think they get wrong is that Pharaoh did not follow the Egyptians into the sea. As I'm going to try and show you, I think we have every reason to believe that he did and that he was actually killed in this event. And that's part of the whole theology that's going on here. Uh, to give you kind of one tip off to this, uh, if you've ever seen depictions of the Pharaohs uh, from like, uh, uh, museums or whatnot, or you know, even if you got a book, like an Encyclopedia Britannica, and you look up the Pharaoh, he had that great big weird headdress, and actually to kind of get back, you know, go back in time a little bit, that headdress was the uniting of two different headdresses, uh, you know, pr- previous to this, which was the uniting of two different kingdoms. But right here in the middle of his headdress, he had a symbol. Do you remember what the symbol was? It, it, it was actually a little snake. Uh, We're going to talk more about this later, but there's significance to that. I think it actually connects back to Genesis 3.15 and to later scripture. Um, But but connecting all of these dots, I think there's significance in the fact that Pharaoh himself gets killed in the waters of the Red Sea coming down because it's part of that theology of God crushing the serpent's head, which is obviously pointing us ultimately forward to Jesus crushing the great serpent's head on the cross. But anyway, are there other things that I should say about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Listen to that sermon. Go If you want like a 45-minute discussion of this, go to our sermon audio page and look up the sermon entitled, I think, The Hardening of Pharaoh's Heart. I go into detail. What I think basically God is doing is let, letting people go off uh, into their own sinful devices. God's not making people sin. You know, God cannot sin. He can't, he's not the author of sin or anything like that. But he can remove the restraints to allow people to do what they want to do in their sin, but he only does that for 
his good, wise purposes. You know, it's kind of like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. He lets the prodigal son go off and squander his life on, you know, riotous living and whatnot, but he does that for a good, wise purpose. And also, when God allows other individuals to go off into their sin, you know, whether it be Pharaoh, whether it be, you know, there are, there are actually a number of occasions of God says hardening this or that person, uh, that's only for his good and wise purposes. The last thing I want you to notice, in verse 4, who will know that I am the Lord? Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say that the Israelites will know that I am the Lord, but the Egyptians. I've brought this up before, so I won't belabor it too much now, but there's definitely an evangelistic motive in the entire Exodus event, and not only for the people of Israel, but also for the Egyptians. God wants the Egyptians to embrace Jehovah as God. And part of why he's conquering Pharaoh is so that they'll embrace Jehovah with saving faith. You know, I remind you that what distinguishes a pharaoh from a king? Uh, a pharaoh believes that he's basically God incarnate. Well, by crushing their God incarnate, what, what are, should the Egyptians conclude? They're going to conclude that Jehovah, he is God, and our pharaoh is nothing. Uh, so again, hopefully you're seeing the significance of pharaoh actually dying in the waters of the Red Sea, and also see the way in which, even in the Old Testament, God had a heart for the nations. This idea of like global missions, this is not uh, this brand new plan B that comes on the scene after Jesus' resurrection. No, all along, God does desires worshipers from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. True, he uh, administers that plan differently in different ages, uh, but at the same time, that's always been his heart, to gather worshipers from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Let's pick up in verse 5. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, pardon, pause right there, fled, uh, they got out of there quick. And, and it makes sense. I mean, if you've been in slavery in some hostile land for 400 years, you're not going to want to stick around. So they, they get out of there and fast. The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let, the Isra we have let Israel go from serving us? Like we've talked about before, this would have been just economic devastation for Israel. I mean, this, this was like the, uh, the, the machine of their economy, these two million slaves. Uh, so imagine overnight, all of a sudden they're looking around and they're, they're all of a sudden having sort of like buyer's remorse. They're like, what, what on earth did we do? We, ju we just basically let our two million free slaves go free. Uh, we, we change our mind. And it does show you how fickle people can be. Uh, you know, even after 10 plagues, uh, just a little bit of financial pressure, they're thinking that, that was a mistake, let's go after them. Verse 6, so he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Now we need to talk about this a little bit because it's not just 600 chariots. You can see there's 600 chariots, but it also mentions the army and then other chariots. Now, again, the people of Israel are roughly 2 million. 600 chariots against 2 million is, you know, not going to do a whole lot. You know, 600 chariots is still pretty impressive, but 2 million people, that's, you know, that's a sea of people bigger than you could you could even see across. So, you know, while 600 would certainly inflict some punishment, that they're, they're probably not going to be able to round up all 2 million. So probably there are 600 chariots sort of as like the the cavalry, cavalry, and then there's the army, and then there are other chariots. So imagine a very large army. Uh, it, it wasn't two million people, but it was big enough that the people of Israel were terrified by this army. Uh, you know, if you know anything about warfare, there are different groups. You know, you got your your cavalry, and you got your infantry, and you know, and that's probably how Israel had it as well. But at the front was Pharaoh in his chariot. Uh, in the event you don't know what a chariot is, you know, I don't want to 
assume you know all these things. A chariot was basically like this cart that was drawn by a horse, and typically there were at least two in the chariot. They were fairly big things. They were almost like, uh, you know, chariots were not like a little sled or something like that. They were actually quite large, almost like a little cart, and you would have the driver, and then you would have an archer, and sometimes even more than that, in this chariot. And, uh, you know, they were kind of like the tanks of the ancient world because they could go around real fast and they could, you know, swoop in from this side and the archers could shoot at them. Uh, so they, they would have been quite terrifying. And again, remember, the children of Israel were uh, slaves until like yesterday. So, so they're not all fitted out with the best tactical equipment and weapons and whatnot. Uh, you know, they, they might be carrying like shovels and, and, you know, maybe a staff or something like that, but they wouldn't have anything like that. So imagine, you know, two million just peasants, you know, in a field uh, with, you know, a great big sea on one side, and all of a sudden they see this army coming, and at the front of the army are basically uh, the equivalent of tanks. It would have been pretty fright, fright, frightening. Uh, let's keep going here. Verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There it is again. This theme comes up a lot. I know that a lot of people don't like the hardening of heart concept, um, but I think it comes up so frequently that you can't just sort of ignore it and like wish it away. Uh, if I remember correctly, it comes up something like 15 times in the book of Exodus. So deal with it, and again, let God tell us what his word means. Let's, let, let's not try to be wiser than God and say, yeah, yeah I'm just going to ignore that because I don't like it. You get in that habit, and next thing you know, you'll be ignoring other stuff that makes you uncomfortable. And, and you get in that habit, and next thing you know, you'll be one of these sort of like wishy-washy progressive Christians that just sort of like picks and chooses Bible verses they like, but then lives like the rest of the world. It's a terrible, terrible place to be in. It's a terrifying place to be in, to be totally honest. Uh, so let's let the Bible be our authority, not what we are comfortable with being our authority. Anyway, verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. For the sake of time, we won't talk about defiantly, but isn't that an interesting description of how they left? Uh, we're like, we're getting out of here fast, but they're kind of almost like shaking their fists at their evil slave masters. Verse 9, the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and encamped by the sea at Pihaharoth in front of Baal Zephon. Again, we don't know where these places are. But basically the point is Israel's trapped. So again, imagine the waters of the Red Sea. And like we talked about last week, this is probably not the great giant section of the Red Sea uh, that sort of is on the border of Saudi Arabia and the African continent. That would have been just enormous to no end. But if you go up north uh, between, say, Egypt and Sinai, there's this little kind of, I don't know what you would call it, gulf or something like that. It's, it's still big and deep and you know enough water to drown people in, uh, but it's not like as if you're crossing Lake Superior or something like that. Um, you know, it, so it's, it's definitely a big section, but that in Moses' day would have been included in the Red Sea. Um, I kind of wish I had a map up here to show you what I'm talking about, but uh, you know, if, you, if you're, there, there's Sinai, there's Saudi Arabia, and you know, over here there's this true gulf that's deep and, and a lot of water, and it would have taken a good, a good bit to cross it, but that's probably what they're crossing. Let's see if we can finish up to verse 14 uh, today. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So they're terrified, they're praying, which is a good thing, um, but they're terrified. Again, it illustrates how fickle our hearts are. They had just seen all these acts of deliverance. They had seen God kill the firstborn of every uh, you know, person that's not covered with the blood. Uh, so did they have reason to trust? Yes, but 
Truth be told, the flesh is weak. And if you or, you or I were in that same situation, we'd probably be pretty scared too. Because you know, you, we know the rest of the story today. Living you know, 3,400 years later, we know the rest of the story, how God is going to get victory over Pharaoh. But they didn't know how this was going to end. Maybe they thought they were just going to get uh, obliterated by the Egyptians. So they're scared. They're crying out in prayer, which is the right thing. But let's look at what they do next. Verse 11. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us? In bringing us out of Egypt. So, in a way, I, I think that illustrates kind of the war of the flesh and the spirit. In the spirit, they're praying to God, Lord, deliver us. But in the flesh, they're castigating Moses. Moses, what on earth? You know, are, are you trying to get us killed? Uh, do you want us to die? And again, I, that, that's not okay. It's it's certainly sin. But you know, if, if you or I, uh, if we're people of flesh, which we are, we can sympathize with that. We understand what it means to be kind of pulled in both directions, to have the flesh telling us one thing, the spirit telling us something else, uh, to be afraid, but at the same time to be praying, but also to be criticizing God's leaders. We, we get that, and that's all that we see here on display. Verse 12, is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Uh, in a way, it's true, but again, they're, they're not really walking by faith and not by sight. They're not really getting that God can do great things here. And that is one of the great temptations to kind of... Uh, Limit God and think there's no way God can fix this situation. There's no way God can get me out of this dilemma. Uh, you can't even comprehend. You can't even conceive of the things that God can do. It reminds me of Ephesians 3, 20, uh, 19 and 20. Uh, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think. Uh, God can do great and mighty things that you cannot comprehend. So don't limit him. Don't think like I'm trapped in this job forever. I'm trapped in this awful family situation forever. I'm trapped in this uh, enslaving sin forever. Uh, you, you don't limit God in what he can do. Cry out to him, walk by faith, and then kind of like what the, what the Israelites do here, uh, stand back and see the salvation of God. Verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Now in a way, this is very much a picture of what it means to be saved by grace, not by good works. The, Egypt, or the Israelites, excuse me, if I ever, by the way, confuse Israelites and Egyptians, my brain does stuff like this. So it's, if it's an obvious confusion, just give me the benefit of the doubt. I do this sort of thing often. But this is, again, kind of a picture of how we're saved by grace, not works. The Israelites, there's nothing they can do. You know, all the good works in the world aren't going to save them. They're not going to be able to defeat Pharaoh's gigantic, powerful army with anything that they've got. But what are they to do? They're to put no confidence in the flesh and to fall back and to trust the Lord. That's exactly what we do in salvation. I don't know if I've made this as clear as I should in my own ministry, but what it means to be saved by grace and not by works means there's absolutely nothing we can do to save us. It's a free gift that we receive by faith alone. Uh, you could illustrate it this way. Every other religion is basically you climbing your way to heaven through good works. Uh, be nice to the poor, uh, you know, give generously, obey the Ten Commandments, uh, follow these five pillars, whatever. But I am climbing my way to heaven. The Bible's plan of salvation is this. You just rest and let me take care of the work of salvation. You trust in me and I will fight your battles for you. You believe my promises and I will crush the serpent, pay for your sins, uh, ensure your, your, what's the word I'm trying to think of, safe 
deliverance to heaven. You, you, you just trust me and I'll get the job done. If you will embrace that gift by faith, I'll do the work and you just stand back and uh, stand in awe. You totally see that here with the uh, conquering of the Egyptians, but it's really no different than in how God conquers death, sin, and the devil. It's all his work. And, and that's why whenever you come, it, it's, it surprises me even how often in the New Testament salvation is described as a free gift. Uh, you know, by grace you're saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Uh, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This gift idea comes up over and over and over again, and the big point is you don't do anything. Uh, all you do when you get saved is bring the sin that needs to be forgiven. Uh, you put no confidence in your good works. You put no confidence in your bad works. You trust only and entirely in what Jesus has done. But when you do that, when you're silent, uh, the most amazing thing happens. God actually saves you. He forgives you of all of your sins. He comes and indwells you by His Holy Spirit. He begins to change you from the inside so that you become somebody that wants to love God, wants to love your neighbor, uh, when all of that is just a free gift that we receive by faith. Hopefully you're getting some of that, and hopefully you personally have embraced this gift with faith. And if you haven't, do it right now. Uh, before the end of this talk, embrace by faith what Jesus has done. Stop striving, stop working, stop trying to make yourself good enough, what, you know, however you want to word it. Instead, believe Jesus has fought and been victorious for me. He's conquered death, sin, and the devil for me. And now by faith, I receive all that he has accomplished and offers to me. Uh, do that today and you will be saved. Now, we'll conclude there our reading through first... Uh, yeah, our reading through uh, Exodus. Uh, but how can we pray this back to God? Many things come to my mind. First, let's pray that God helps us to be humble and let Him, through His Word, teach us what He's like, as opposed to imposing our understand our preconception of what God is like on Scripture. Uh, let's trust in God that He can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. You know, there are times that you're going to feel trapped. You're going to feel as if you're the people of Israel and the Egyptians are coming toward you. Uh, but God, again, can do great and mighty things that we cannot comprehend. So let's pray that God helps us to trust in Him in situations like that. And for any within the hearing of my voice, who have not yet received the free gift of God in Christ Jesus, uh, let's pray that they would today embrace this gift and all that God is offering to them. Let's pray and we'll be done. God, it's good. It's enjoyable to study your word together, and we thank you for the opportunity we've had today to talk about Exodus 14. Lord, as we contemplate your character, please help us to humbly submit to every word of Scripture. It's so easy to try to imagine you as we want you to be, to, to think that you're like us, to limit you. So please prevent us from doing that and allow us to humbly submit to Scripture. And especially when you're, the things that you do maybe rub us the wrong way, again, give us the humility to submit to Scripture and not to try to change you into our image. God, we do thank you for the way that you save as a free gift by grace. We don't do anything. Uh, it's offered freely to all who would come to Jesus. So we do pray for any who are listening to this, watching this, that if they've not yet put their hope in Jesus, that right now you would move them by your Holy Spirit uh, to, to stand back and to see the salvation of the Lord, uh, to be silent and to let Jesus fight death, sin, and the devil for them. Again, we do pray that everybody hearing this would put their full hope in Jesus now. Uh, bless now the remainder of our week. Give us grace to love those we interact with and bring us back to study again next week here. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Have a great day. We'll catch you later.